Joshua chapter 6, our journey through the scriptures where we pick things up this evening. As we begin chapter 6, we, it's a, a point in which the children of Israel and the preliminaries and all of the preliminaries have been important and uh, in terms of preparation for entering into the promised land. But now they begin their conquest of the promised land in earnest with the conquest of a city by the name of uh, Jericho. The method, and it's interesting when you look at the Bible, it's uh, interesting to realize that even to this day, in military academies, West Point, other places in, around the world, that when people are educated in terms of military tactics and uh, methodology that the the battles of the Bible are always studied. I have a book at home and I think uh, Haim uh, Potok is, no that's not, he's the author of fiction, but anyway, um, um, Haim, Haim Herzog uh, is the author of, uh, co-author of one of those books and they talk about all of these different battles and there's a method be, that uh, God has behind the different uh, strategies that he used for the conquest of the land. The children of Israel are p right outside of the city of Jericho and basically what they're going to do in the larger picture beyond Jericho is they're going to thrust into the center of the nation of Israel or into the promised land. And when they thrust in and they attack Jericho and they conquer it and they then continue that thrust on to Ai and beyond, it is a tactic that is known as divide and conquer. They will essentially, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, divide the nation of Israel into or the promised land into two sections, the north and the south. And having divided that uh, land in half, they take away the opportunity for the strongest tribes and uh, city-states within the land to unite from the north and the south to then fight against uh, Israel kind of in mass. And so they divide the land, they go down ultimately and conquer the uh, southern uh, kingdoms, uh, city-states that were in the south. They were the stronger of, of the uh, city-states in the land. They defeat them uh, in the leading uh, kind of tribe was uh, the Amorites and then having defeated the enemy in the south they then moved and mopped things up in in the north and so but first comes the defeat of Jericho and there's a lot of things that we learn from all of this and we look at these physical battles of the nation of Israel and we realize that very often in the New Testament much of the Christian life is uh, spoken of in military terms, athletic terms, lots of other different kind of imagery that's used, but a great deal of the imagery for the Christian life is military uh, terms. It is a battle that we are in. I think all of us understand that have known the Lord for more than 48 hours. And uh, it, it really is kind of a terrible thing what's happening today where in um, kind of our sophistication and uh, how civilized we've become that much of the professing uh, church is put off by this military kind of imagery and they're changing even lyrics within the hymns and, and trying to uh, you know, soften this imagery within the scriptures. But uh, candidly, it's refreshing to me. I don't know about you, but I'm in a battle every day. <laughs> 
going to battle against my flesh. I'm going to battle against the temptations of this world and the very, very spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in the middle of. I'm not put off by the imagery at all. I need all of the encouragement I can get and all the instruction that I can uh, get. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now, Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. No one went out and none went in. So we see the, not only the um, physical condition of the city of Jericho, but also their mental and emotional condition. They are terrified uh, of the children of Israel. They know they're about to be attacked. So they've sealed everything up, not even spies coming in and out. They aren't even risking the opening of the gate or the smallest opening into the city uh, for uh, the chance that it would give an opening to the children of Israel to come in and take the city. So they're all sealed up. And they have a fear of the children of Israel, just as God had declared to Moses that he would put that fear on the children of Israel's enemies. And so God is keeping his promise here. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. Now, you've got to look at that in faith, because as Joshua is looking at the city of Jericho, he sees it all sealed up. But he sees walls that are 45 feet high. It's always, this passage has always been kind of humorous to me. It's like, uh, see, the city is given over to you. They've got mighty men behind it, seasoned in warfare. The walls are high. And, and I'd be tempted to say to the Lord, are we looking at the same Jericho? <laughs> I mean, are we on the same page here? Can I get the little thing and maybe I get to get, me get to the right one? What's this thing called that you did when you were a kid? What is it? A viewmaster, right? Okay. So can I get on the right viewmaster image with you? So, but he had to look at it by faith and the promises that God had given to him. And, uh, and so that was the actual condition of the city. The, whatever condition God says uh, the physical thing is, then, then that's what it is, whatever it may uh, look like to us in the natural. And he proceeds then to give uh, Joshua the battle plans for the conquest of uh, Jericho. You shall march around the city, all of you men of war, and you shall go all around the city once, and this you shall do for six days. That's what the, and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram, ram's horns before the ark, but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Now that's a very uh, interesting battle plan that God gives to the children of of Israel, and uh, he has not only um, the military men involved, and basically what he has is he's going to have a group of the children of Israel, a, military, a group of military force at the, at the forefront, then the priests with the Ark of the Covenant uh, in between, and then a smaller military force behind them. And that's the group that is going to uh, go around that city uh, one time a day for the first six days. He involves the priests for a reason. Because God is communicating to the inhabitants of the city of Jericho that what he is involved in is not merely a physical battle, but what is going to happen here in the conquest of Jericho is a, a spiritual conquest that's going to occur also. That God Almighty, the God of the children of Israel, is going to flex his muscles and he is going to defeat all of the 
idols and all of the objects of worship of the people that were there in, in Jericho. And so there was going to be this uh, exposing of the false gods uh, of the land. So that's what the six days were going to be. The seventh day would be a little different, the blowing of the trumpets, a shout, and then all of the city, the walls would fall down. Now, um, you put yourself in Joshua's place, and Joshua is a seasoned military man. He's been involved in warfare really for many, many years now uh, as a part of, of the children of Israel. And you get this kind of a battle plan uh, from the Lord, and you almost be tempted to say, now let me now run that by me again. How are we going to uh, do this? Now, uh, now, now tell me, okay, I get this. I've got a military here, got a spiritual group here, and you've got another military group here, and... I just didn't hear where the battering rams are uh, or where the siege works are and where are we going to get like the uh, oil that we're going to roll up to the front of the wooden doors and burn them down and get in there. I mean, it's one of the most unorthodox battle plans in, in the history of the world. And it's one of the most important lessons, I think, of the book of, of uh, Joshua. And that is, as unorthodox as God's plan was, It worked. And you know why it worked? Because it was God's plan. It was God's word. And God stands behind his word. He never gives a command. He never gives instruction. Except that he makes it his personal responsibility to stand behind that command and that instruction and then prove that command true in the life of his people. And it is an absolutely vital lesson in possessing the promises of God, possessing the fullness of the life that has been purchased for us as Christians by the blood of Jesus Christ. God stands behind his plans. He stands behind his commands. And what is true of this plan that he gave, the conquest of Jericho, is true of every command that he gives in the Bible. If we will but obey what his word tells us to do in the various circumstances in life as we just simply obey it we will discover the power to obey it and then those commandments will be proven to have the final say in a situation no matter how great the stronghold in our life I don't care what addiction what life-dominating sin has been a part of our life for decades or all of our life until the day that we come to know Christ. I don't care if it has snapped its finger and every time it does, we have for decades jumped to attention and obeyed that sin. I don't care how high the walls are, how thick the walls are, if we will just but obey God's commandment as a child of God, and experience his power to do it, those walls of those strongholds will come down. In the New Testament, beautiful passage in this vein, I'll read it to you in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for your note takers. Verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the Spirit, uh, Paul said uh, to the church at Corinth, once again, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, of the flesh, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So no matter what it is, we don't deal with a physical Jericho in our Christian life, but there are these strongholds that sit there and we look and we say, God, how... I can't make any movement into this beautiful Christian life that you've described in the New Testament. This gigantic stronghold that's been there for so long is right in front of me. How is it going to come down? And we begin to obey God's Word. And as we obey God's Word, no matter how great the stronghold is, it ultimately gives way to His truth. I think that very often, and it's a great frustration for me sometimes uh, as, as a Christian, but... Very, very often as we talk with one another as Christians and then so very often for us as pastors as we'll talk with different people and you will give somebody what God's Word says about a particular situation and this is what God tells you to do related to this and it's step one, step two, step three. Practically, here's the verses that tell you what to do. Now go out and obey Him in His power and watch what happens. Very often a person will take that and then they'll go to some smart person who doesn't know the Lord. And they'll say, listen, this is what they told me to do here. And and what God says for us to do can sometimes seem so ludicrous to the world. It can, seem, it can seem so naive, so simplistic. They told you what? Don't they know the size of this this fortress, don't they know how long you fought against it? Don't they know how entrenched this thing is in your life? How could they ever say to you that it's as simple as obeying these things and then there will be the change that is needed in your life? But what they don't understand is that God stands behind His Word. And He will bring all of the supernatural that He needs to bring to our obedience to bring these great strongholds down in our life. I believe in the power of God. I believe in the promises of God. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in these things. Not as some kind of theological whatever that bounces in my head like a pong game. I believe it because I've experienced it. There is no explanation for my life. You don't want to even know what I would be today if I were still alive. Apart from Christ, apart from His Word, and apart from the fact that He stands behind His Word. And I know the same is true of you. Anyone that wants to come to me and say, God's Word isn't sufficient, it's naive, it's too simplistic, you are too late to convince me. I'm on the other side of that. I know the power of God in my own life. And I know that these things are available, of course, to all of us as Christians. You bear witness to the same thing. One of the things that, one of my favorite scriptures uh, in the Bible, and it's, it's a rebuke of Jesus toward the Sadducees in the New Testament. The Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the, in the supernatural. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't fit in their minds, which is such a sad thing. Because if it can fit in my mind, it's smaller than me. Why would I worship something smaller than me? But this is what they did to God. They made Him smaller than Himself. 
And they came to this whole trick with Jesus and this man he married, and then she died, and then he married, and then whose wife is going to be a husband? She, no, she, and then he died. He and she, it was a she and seven. They run through, who's going to, in eternity, they're going to be married. And Jesus speaks to him, and he says, you do err. Number one, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And to me, there's a great Sadducean spirit in the world today where number one, people do not know their Bibles. And number two, they do not realize the power of God behind His Word. His reputation is at stake if He fails to keep His promises as it relates to our lives. And so here is the beautiful application for our own lives. The victory at Jericho didn't come by might or didn't come by natural power or any of those things, but it came through just a simple trust in God's promises. They took the battle plan. This is what God says that we are to do. They simply demonstrated their faith and trust in God by obeying the battle plan, and the walls fall down. Writer Hebrews puts it this way. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after, that's obedience, after they were encircled for seven days. If we will, in the power of God, God gives us the will to do and the power to do of His good pleasure. If we will just, by faith, obey what He tells us to do, related to our eyes, related to our ears, related to our body, related to our tongue, our speech, these different areas of our life, begin to obey those commandments, then we will see these strongholds come down. We will see the pathway open up to the richness of the life that is described for us in, in uh, the New Testament, again, purchased for us by Christ. I was raised for a time in my childhood uh, in the things of the Lord. So later on when I left home, I went out into the world to do my own thing. I was smarter than God. I wasn't inclined to walk with God at the moment. It wasn't a brilliant move. <laughs> I wasn't gone for long. I may be stupid, but I'm not long stupid. But I, I, felt, I, I felt that it was good and I was thankful for the heritage and these things and, and all, but maybe for a little bit of time I thought I was smarter than God. And I learned very, very quickly. And I didn't head in, you know, I don't have a testimony that would scare any of you, but I learned very, very quickly that God is not only much smarter than me, but He is the only smart one in the whole universe. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. And so when it's not for us to judge the reasonableness of God's commands, it's for us to obey those commands and then to watch the miraculous happen in our lives. I love this chapter because of that lesson alone that's uh, a part of it. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, he called the priests and he said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests 
bear seven trumpets of ram horns, ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. And so he gives this game plan now uh, to the priests and, uh, and, and none of them are going to flinch. None of them are going to say, wait a second, could you go back? Can we get a second opinion on this? Uh, Any time we do something around the church, we're going to buy some kind of an item or something. Like the three, two or three opinions and prices and that kind of thing. Can we send this back for review? None of them did it. And the reason they just took the, the battle plan from God through Joshua is that they had already seen God's favor on Joshua's life and the crossing of uh, the Jordan River. So God was way ahead of uh, them preparing the way for Joshua to be able to lead in this way. And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of seven ram's horns went before the Lord, uh, advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. So the Ark of the Covenant representing the presence of God. Victory over Jericho would be an act of a very present God with the children of Israel. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word even proceed out of your mouth for the first six days until I say to you, Shout, then you shall uh, shout. And so he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once, and then they came back into the camp, and they lodged in the camp. So there's day one. And all of the people in Jericho are watching this thing. They're thinking, okay, when do they spring the attack on us? And, and, uh, but, but no attack uh, came. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, but the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. And so they did for six days. Jericho probably was a city that sat on about eight to nine acres. So a journey for this size of a group of people around that city each day probably took them about 30 minutes in, in order to do that. Now it takes a little faith on their part to do that for six days in a row. Because um, the, it, psychologically, I don't know what it did for the people in Jericho. I mean, every single day they see that I mean, every day you get all worked up and ready for the attack and then it doesn't come and whoom, emotionally down and then up again and down again. So I don't know what was what was happening on that end. But the children of Israel, to just kind of do that thing and just methodically do it. Uh, were kind of opening themselves up to maybe the people of Jericho springing a surprise attack on them. Didn't happen because the fear of God was was on them. And so this they did for the six uh, days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. So instead of just one time around, they did it seven times. So from the walls of Jericho, it's like, okay, this is something new. And uh, so they're watching this. Probably would have taken them about two hours to do these seven trips uh, around the city. And the seventh time it happened when the 
priests blew the trumpets, but Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the city has been given to you. In other words, uh, now it's time uh, to attack. And now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And so he reminds them, take the city, but don't forget we made a promise to Rahab and all of her family and, and others that would be in her house that they were to be uh, spared. And so, uh, so the reminder of that. And... Verse 18, And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. All of the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So God said this to the children of Israel. Jericho is the first city you're going to take. It constitutes the first fruits of of taking the land. And God, even with the crops and, and uh, the herds in, in the Old Testament, He required that the first fruits be given to Him as an acknowledgement that everything that we have has come from God. And then following the offering of our first fruits to Him, whether it was grain or whatever it might be, then God would allow the children of Israel to then have as their own what it was that they harvested after that. God just wanted to be acknowledged as their source right at the beginning. And he carries that over here. So any, anything that couldn't be burned in the city, so all these metal things were to be given to God, they were to be put into the treasury, ultimately to be uh, used in, as a part of the tabernacle and ultimately the building of, of the temple. And so everything from Jericho, important to understand this for the next chapter, everything was to belong to God. Nobody was to take anything in terms of a spoil uh, from, from the city. And so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the walls, uh, wall fell down flat, and then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in it, uh, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. It's interesting that here we have this gigantic, as we mentioned a little bit last week, we have this huge build-up to the conquest of the city of Jericho. And then when it comes to actually conquering the account that God gives and the conquering of the city of Jericho, he encapsulates it in two verses. Verses 20 and 21. Oh, by the way, we did it. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a, well, we came over here and did this, and then I knew this, and over here, and then we, and then they came, and a group went, and like, all the, no insights like that. It says, we took the city. The interesting thing about God is that whatever physical thing we're dealing with in our lives, some promise that He's given us of some physical kind of deal, or some conquest in our own life related to sin or victory or gifting or calling or these kinds of things. It's never supremely about the physical thing with God. God knows that what He promises to us, He's going to give it to us. God is not the big question mark in the sky. When He promises, it, it's coming our way. So that's a given. 
The biggest deal about any conquest of Jericho or any great trial in our lives is not the physical thing that God is bringing into our lives. That's not what's most important to Him. What is most important to Him is the godly character that's developed in our lives between the time the promise is made and the time that we receive the fulfillment of the promise. The faith that is developed in our lives, the intimacy of personal relationship with God, dependence upon God that is developed. Those are the things that are eternal that are being developed in our lives. Jerichos, they come and go. Uh, Physical things, they come and go. But the spiritual things that He builds into our lives, these are the things that last forever in our lives. And so this whole deal, they got Jericho, God says, whoopee! I mean, it's a big deal in the fact that He promised it to them. But the real treasure that they get out of this is what they learned about God in this. And, and God now has worked that. It's, God is always doing half a dozen things all at the same time. Sometimes we think it's just about this one thing. And then we realize when he finally does what he promised us he would do here, we realize, wow, that was such an insignificant thing in the big picture. He was knocking out these four or five huge things in my life all along in terms of what he was making me into, in terms of Christ-likeness. I love the fact that this is just this brief little thing and, and what continues to live on and be the blessing is what God made them into in the conquest uh, of uh, Jericho. But Joshua said to the two men who spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in. They knew right where her house was. They brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. Do you think she had much difficulty getting people into, uh, convinced to come into her house after a while? I think they were. that room was jammed. So they were all in there. Now, it took some faith for Rahab and that family. I mean, these walls are coming down, the whole deal's happening, the battle's erupting all around them. Stay in the room, boys and girls. They said, stay in the room. They stayed in the room where it was marked by the cord of, of red, the scarlet cord, and so they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, her father's household and all that she had. And so she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from uh, whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. And then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city of Jericho again. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And so uh, Joshua gives a prophecy concerning the fact that uh, a curse kind of directed toward whoever would come and try to refortify the city of Jericho. Now, subsequent to this defeat, uh, Jericho would be inhabited off and on uh, for you know quite a period of time by just regular people. Jericho is a beautiful, beautiful city and one of the most beautiful settings in the whole world and the water source that is there in a very arid Middle East. So it's a great place to put a city. But uh, it, Jer- Joshua isn't talking about 
people just settling into a city. He's talking about someone who will come in. He talks about gates. He's talking about someone coming in and refortifying the the city. So he said, whoever comes in and does this will do so at the expense of, of their uh, sons. And we know that the first attempt at refortifying the city of Jericho occurred about 500 years after these uh, events during the days of King Ahab. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 16 that a man by the name of uh, Hael the Bethelite, he did so and it cost him the lives of both of his uh, sons in doing so. And so the prophecy comes to pass. And so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. So everybody knew about Joshua, his reputation as a leader, and uh, that fame spread far and, and wide. But the reason for his great success and the source of his great reputation is available to every single one of us. He just simply obeyed the commandments that God had given him to do. And then God took care of his reputation. Chapter 7 begins with a bad word, the word but. The word but means forget about everything that just happened. This is, you know, this is a serious uh, shift in, in gears. So the children of Israel, I mean, as they're going here through chapter 6, things could just not be going any better than they, they already were and, and uh, uh, fabulous things had happened right on the heels of victory. And, and uh, that word but, though, tells us that coming out of that victory over Jericho that everything wasn't exactly the way that it uh, seemed. And so the children of Israel and us, they're going to learn another very important spiritual lesson concerning their life and their service to the Lord. I... I wish that everything that I learned, every lesson that I learned, was from 100% uninterrupted victory. How hard would I be to live with? How hard would you be to live with if everything that we learned was just one Jericho after another? I'd write my autobiography, a man of... Faith and Power, an autobiography by Damien Kyle. But a lot of what we learn, and we don't deliberately want it to be so, but it is so. Much of what we learn in the Christian life is because there are certain situations that we don't handle as we ought to. And uh, we experience defeat. And uh, we need to know how to even in the book of Joshua, the ideal is that we would never know defeat. As Christians, we have the power, we have everything from the Spirit to never fail, never sin even once. But the Bible is just as clear that none of us avail ourselves of those resources so perfectly that we don't fail. So we do need to learn how to handle failure and defeat in the course of, of our Christian life too. That's what comes to the children of Israel at, at this point. Um, in time, it is best to learn as much as we can um, how to avoid defeat and those kinds of things by studying the life of others uh, in the Bible. And, uh, but, and that's why this passage is included in the Bible so we can learn from Achan, we can learn from Joshua, we can learn from the children of Israel and then avoid their mistakes in our own life. 
children of Israel are going to experience a terrible defeat here in chapter 7. In fact, it's going to be the only military defeat that they experience in their entire uh, conquest of the land and only recorded casualties that we know of in their conquest of, of the land. And the cause of this defeat is given to us in verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a, and there's the word, trespass concerning the accursed things. The word trespass is an interesting one. There's a lot of words that are used for sin or wrongdoing in the Bible. There's the word sin, which means to miss the mark. But you know, I can miss the mark where, and to miss the mark of God's perfection or His standard. But I can sin uh, deliberately or I can sin um, where... I try my hardest in a given situation. I don't want to sin, but I try my hardest. But I come short of being like Christ in that situation. So I miss the mark. I've been less than perfect, and I sin in that place. So sin can occur where I'm not deliberately wanting to sin. The word trespass here is like a word uh, that is uh, transgression that's found in the Old Testament. And it refers to a deliberate sin. So what is going to happen here in the defeat of the children of Israel is not going to be because somebody tried the, as hard as they could as a child of God and they got into the 90 percentile and they failed there. The reason they're going to suffer defeat here is because someone deliberately and willfully chooses to disobey God's commandments. And so that's the difference between a sin and a transgression or a trespass. The man who commits the trespass is a man by the name of Achan, and he trespasses related to the accursed things. God had said, all of the spoil of the first city belongs to me. Achan steals three articles of loot from the city of Jericho and takes them to himself, and he steals them from the Lord. So this is a, 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 about a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took, you think God knows where he lives? Took the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. And so this trespass of Achan made the Lord righteously angry toward the entire nation of Israel, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho out to Ai, which is the next city that they wanted uh, to conquer in, in taking the land, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them saying, Go up and spy out the country. And so the men went up and they spied out Ai. So the next objective is Ai, about 10 miles uh, northwest of Jericho. The spies are sent out and they return to Jericho and they, uh, to Joshua and they said to him, Do not let all of the people go up. But just let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't worry all of the people, or weary all of the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So they come and they say, listen, there's no need to send the whole army. We just need to send two or three thousand soldiers. That'll do. We'll knock them out. It's just a, the people are few. It's just a small city. Now they make a couple of very, very large mistakes here that are in instructive to us as Christians. 
they're going uh, to experience a terrible defeat in just a couple of verses. And, uh, and while the single great def- reason for the defeat that they're going to experience is that there is sin in the camp, there's willful, deliberate sin among God's people, but there are other, a couple of other sins that contribute to their defeat. And the two sins, number one, overconfidence, and then the second sin is the one that goes hand in glove with overconfidence, and that is prayerlessness. Concerning overconfidence, here they are, they get one victory at Jericho, and now they know all about how to conquer the land. They're little experts now. And how to conquer walled cities and any city, how to take the land and, and what forces to deploy and how many are going to be needed, how many are too few, how many are too many. One little victory and now they're just big shot experts on conquering the land. I don't scorn them. I scorn the same attitude that lives in me. The same tendency to have just one victory from God and now I don't need to check with him, in, with him any longer in these kind of situations in life. Now I'm the big expert. I'll begin to make the decisions on how this is going to go. It takes so little to inflate our pride. So now they're the experts. They're confident. No need to talk uh, this over with God. And of course this is present in all of us to one degree or another. We are probably never in a greater danger... In, then in this area of, of self-confidence and pride than immediately after some great victory where God has used us. And I remember hearing through the years, every so often, uh, somebody speaking as it relates to ministry and saying, be very, very careful after a victory, a great victory where God has used us. I mean, when there's been a great defeat or some kind of a deal where we went into some situation and we felt we were a complete failure in it, (laughs) how quickly do we pray? Very quickly. How dependent do we stay upon God? We stay very dependent upon God. But those situations where we walk in ways that that was a God thing and God used me in the middle of it, the healthiest thing we can do is to find some quiet little place before we go to bed that night and say, God... That was 100% you in that situation. Thank you for using me in that, but I give all of that glory over to you, and you take all of it, and uh, I don't know any bit more about all of these things than I did prior to that battle or prior to that situation. Lord, I need you now as much as I ever did before this great use of Uh, of me in in your hands. The Bible says that we need uh, to take heed when we think we stand, lest we fall. And Paul speaks of that in the context of the history of the children of, of Israel here. We also notice a lack of prayer in this decision. And it seems inconceivable to me that if they had sought the Lord in prayer concerning the conquest of Ai, that God would have done anything other than raise the issue of the sin in the camp and cleaned that up as a result of prayer rather than sending the children of Israel into battle to be defeated and 36 people uh, lose their lives. 
God would have revealed it, but nobody went to him in prayer related to, to the issue. And prayer and prayerlessness, self-confidence, they really go hand in hand. One of my favorite um, sayings about prayer is that prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. Do you know there's a group of people you never have to exhort to pray or to be consistent in prayer in their lives? And that is the person who is conscious of how completely dependent they are on God for everything. Prayer is their life breath. They can afford not to pray. But just as prayer is an expression of my dependence on, on God, an absence of prayer is an expression of my self-confidence. I don't need to check in on Him. I know enough to make these decisions and to handle my life. And I'm an expert on the basis I've walked with God for a while and these kinds of things. And I can do this without Him. And of course, it sets us up for failure because only God possesses the wisdom that we need in order to possess the fullness of, of the life that Christ has for us. And so they, this was their counsel that they gave to Joshua. And so about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, uh, and they attacked there, but then they fled before the men of Ai. They were defeated, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. And the effect that this defeat had on the children of Israel is that their hearts of the people melted and became like water. I hope somebody else has felt that besides me, a Christian walk. They have, are in the middle of enemy territory. They are absolutely blindsided by this defeat. It's just going to be one more victory a la Jericho. And they get defeated here, and they don't know why they get defeated. They are surrounded by nations that are like the lions at the San Francisco Zoo at the 2 o'clock feeding they're waiting to wipe out the children of Israel. And so they realize we have just been defeated, not on the other side of the Jordan River, but we've been defeated now in the, middle, in the midst of our enemies. And all, they, they, all hope, all confidence just completely uh, went out of them. They're terrified, they're demoralized, and the idea is that we're doomed. Joshua hears about it, and he tore his clothes. That was a sign of mourning in those days. You'd tear your clothes because it was an outward expression of how your heart has just been torn by the news. So his, his heart with the leaders, their heart is just literally ripped in half by the news that they've been defeated. They fell to the earth, and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. The elders of Israel joined him, and they put dust on their heads. As they put the dirt on their heads, is an expression of their abasement before, uh, before God. And Joshua, then at the end of the day, he spoke to the Lord in this this broken heart, and he said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. He blames God for the defeat. Ever done that? Don't shout out. Anytime we experience a defeat like this in our lives, it is never God's fault. There's some 
something wrong with the picture that we need to seek the Lord to find out about why did we just experience this defeat. We should never, ever get used to a life of defeat as Christians where we just say, in that area, I'm defeated. I never know victory there. I've accepted that, and that's just going to be my portion until I get into heaven. Defeat in our lives as Christians should always alarm us. It should always send us to God in prayer, saying, what in the world is happening in this situation that I do not see Give me your wisdom for what victory looks like here. And God will meet us in that. So to their credit, they are shocked by the defeat. The defeat is unacceptable to them. But Joshua does not know the reason. He doesn't know that there is sin in the camp. And so his only conclusion can be is that God has failed us in some way. And God, if you were going to fail us in some way, then couldn't you have done it when there was a swollen river between us and our enemies? But again, always, whenever we think that God has failed us, it is never Him that's failed. There is something about the circumstance that needs to be changed that sometimes only He is aware of. And as we go to Him in prayer, He will give us instruction for how to come out of this defeat. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all of the inhabitants of the land will hear about our defeat. They're going to surround us and they're going to cut off your name from the earth. We're the only people worshiping you in the world, Lord. If they defeat us, it's going to cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Lord, if they come in and they wipe us out... It's not only us getting wiped out, but it's going to damage your reputation in the world because you are our God. And so he calls upon the Lord here. He's basically informing God. I just want you to know the consequences of this this failure here. In case you didn't know, we're probably going to get wiped out and it's going to be a black eye for you. Thank you, Joshua. And again, I'm rebuking myself. It's all in me. I feel it off the pages. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up off your face. What are you doing on your face here? Get up. He says, get up. Why do you lie on your face? The beautiful thing is, is that the Lord let them lie on their face for a full day. He let them do that for a full day. But there comes a point in time, after we've humbled ourselves before God and we've sought His face, there's a time where now the prayer in the morning ends... And now there's a time to stand up and address the problem that led to the defeat. And so that's what he's, he's going to tell them that they need to do here. Now he informs Joshua of the cause of the defeat. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed, uh, transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived and they have put it among their own stuff. It is for this reason that the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies. Joshua, that's the real cause of the defeat here. Thank you, Lord. 
Here's the consequence. Because they have become doomed to destruction as a result of this disobedience, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. And so the Lord warns them that there's sin in the camp, and unless this gets taken care of and you take this very, very seriously, then I'm going to remove my active presence for good in your midst, and you will be wiped out. Their history hangs in the balance. I think that one of the things that a person can ask at this point is we look at it and we realize it was Achan and his household that stole uh, the accursed things, the things that were to be given to God. Why would one man's sin be allowed to affect the entire nation? Because that is the way that it is among God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is true of what has been true and is true of God's people all through history. The deliberate disobedience of any child of God, OT, New Testament, it affects the larger whole. When you have a Christian who swears and uses foul language and lies and all at, at work, that doesn't just affect their reputation as a Christian. That affects the reputation of every single Christian in the world. In China, in Burma, in Argentina. Because people feel absolutely free, and they're entitled to, to come to conclusions about every single Christian on the basis of what they see in a single Christian. And they do. So anyone who sins, especially deliberate sin like this, what it does is it reflects upon all of us. And, and so this is the lesson that he, he's made. And it's an, a sober lesson for us as Christians is to realize that every Christian in the world is affected by a deliberate sin that I commit. And I am affected by their deliberate sin. All of our reputations are tarnished by it. It's a heavy thing, but it's a real thing. And so as Christians, we need to be known for for obedience. And so this is why the whole nation was affected, because it's a truth about God's people. We move forward together in a very real sense uh, in, in this world, in the kingdom uh, of God. He said in verse 13, Get up and sanctify the people and say to them, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, this defeat has something to do with holiness because, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Joshua explains to the children of Israel the cause of this defeat. There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. And in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by household, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be known that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. And so he has committed a sin against God, 
this guilty party. He has committed a, a capital crime in a sense and that his sin has led to the death of 36 innocent people. And so God said the, the sentence upon this one and, the, and those that are involved in it with him will be probably to be stoned to death and then their bodies uh, to be burned. And so Joshua rose early in the morning. I bet he did. I bet there's only one person in the whole camp of Israel that got less sleep than Joshua that night. Who do you think got less sleep? Achan. Appropriately named, by the way. <laughs> so Joshua rose early in the morning and he brought Israel by their tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. So here's this whole group. There's a, oh, two to three million children of Israel, twelve tribes. The tribe of Judah gets pulled out from among uh, all of the other, other tribes. And then among the tribe of Judah, uh, the, the, he brought out the family of the Zarhites. And uh, then brought uh, from the family of the Zarhites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And then Joshua brought his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now, I'd, I would not have wanted to have been in Achan's uh, shoes in, in all of that. You, I mean, you think about the tension and the drama is it's all narrowing down. If you put yourself in his shoes, it's like, okay, well, they chose, um, you know, the tribe of Judah, but that's one in 12. Uh, maybe they'll grab another family next. But, I mean, just one by one, you know, is the, the Lord kind of narrows things down. It just becomes, you know, gets closer and closer to him until finally the spotlight is put on him and, and he's exposed. And it's done in this way that there's just this tremendous tension about all of it as it's being narrowed down in order to really, you know, make the point of the seriousness of sin in the camp and that God knows who the guilty uh, party is. And, and so uh, this God directed them in this way probably through either the Urim and the Thummim or the casting of Lot, some way supernaturally, and Achan is brought forth. Now, Achan's name actually means trouble, and he was appropriately named. He brought trouble uh, to the children of, of, uh, of Israel here. And so here, here's this whole uh, uh, situation as the Lord is narrowing it down. You know, one of the, my favorite verses in the, in the whole Bible, and I have so many, it just depends on what I'm preaching on at the moment, uh, but in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. There's nothing that's hidden from him. I mean, you look at, he just looked at that. He could look at two to three million people. He could see one man. He could see the sin in his heart. And he could narrow that whole thing down better than a GPS system. I never want to stand in front of a God who knows me that well. Apart from the blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that is found in Him. Every once in a while I'll run into somebody, yeah, I'll be into heaven, I'll tell you, and I gotta, I'll tell God a thing or two and everything about why. So, oh, man, you don't know what He knows. He knows what you've forgotten about yourself. You don't want to face this God 
apart from the Savior that He has sent. And I'm thankful tonight that I will never face this, this holy, righteous God independent of His Son and the covering of that blood upon my, upon my life. And so Achan is brought out to the forefront. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you. This is not fun for Joshua. He says, My son, I beg you. Tell us what happened here. The Bible says, Galatians chapter 6, it's verse 1 or 2. It says, If a person is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, go to such a one with a spirit of gentleness and with an eye on restoration. It's a soft heart that, that, that Joshua, he's going to be firm with him, but it's a soft heart. Never think we won't see Achan in heaven. He makes a mistake. He sins. He transgresses. We don't minimize that. God makes an example of him in the Old Testament. But his salvation is not based on, on that. I think we'll see him one day in heaven. I don't know his, his eternal state. But I, I don't look at him and say, well, he, he's not going to be there. Joshua said to him, I, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you've done. Don't hide it from me. God on, Joshua only knows what God has told him. He doesn't know all the details. Achan will fill in the details. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I've done. Now, his confession is hardly weighty because he waits until he's exposed to confess his sin to God and to those that he has sinned against. It would have been far more powerful for him to do it before God had to, to expose him. But finally he does it, and he said, this is what happened. When I saw, notice that word saw, among the spoils of the Jericho, a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. Notice this, I coveted them, and then notice again, and took them, and there they are, hidden, number four, in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. You have one of the most amazing pictures of the progression of sin, the usual progression of sin in any of our lives, right there in verse 21, encapsulated by, number one, I saw. We need to protect our eyes, the eye gate for what we allow into our lives. I saw. I coveted. What was contrary to God's, God's word, I then took and I've hid. That's the progression. Whether it's David dealing with Bathsheba, whether it's Satan tempting Eve in the garden, it's the same progression. And, and so here he falls prey to it, and that's why the Lord warns us about what we put before our eyes, what, our, what our, the, our heart condition is in terms of what we lust for, a desire in the world. And because once the battle is lost in the heart, it's lost in the mind, then pretty soon we're taking and doing things that we shouldn't be doing and, and then getting into all kinds of trouble. You know the interesting thing to me about this, and it's very instructive on it, I get the whole I saw, I coveted, and I took, but that whole angle of 
of, I have hidden these goods in, in my tent. He disobeyed God to get these things, and he never got to enjoy them. He put them in a hole in the ground. <laughs> have you ever taken something that God told you not to take or done something that God told you not to do. How much joy did you get out of that? I'll guarantee you, you had the same experience I did. You have it, but you put it in a hole in the ground. God will not give us the capacity to enjoy the fruits of disobedience to Him. So one of the things that's nice about growing older in the Lord a little bit is to realize when these things tempt us, it's like, yes, I can go and get it, but I've tried that once or twice already, and there's nothing enjoyable about the whole process. It only gets hidden, and it has to be given back anyway. And it's a wonderful thing about the Lord. God keeps me on such a short leash it's a choke chain. I can hardly get away with anything. I'm not saying that I can't or that I'm, I don't have it within my nature to do that, but He won't let me enjoy anything outside of His will. And I love it. Keeps people like me in line. <laughs> and so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it all was, hidden in his tent, with a silver under it. And they took it from the midst of the tent and they brought it to Joshua and to the children of Israel and they laid it out before the Lord. And so here it is. We have every fact in, under Old Testament law was, verif was established on the basis of two witnesses. They had Achan's witness and now they had the witness of the evidence. He's guilty. And then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah. They took the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his his, not his onkeys, his donkeys. <laughs> kind of a cross between donkeys and pigs. They took his sheep. That one never got on the ark. They took his sheep, his tent, all that he had. They brought him to the valley of Achor. And the word Achor means trouble also. So the valley is going to na be named after this event. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And so all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned, stoned, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And so they were killed by stoning. Their bodies were then burned. And then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day at the time of this writing. And so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, and therefore the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, to this day. Sometimes people look at it and they wonder why was it necessary for um, his family to be uh, judged uh, with him. And it's important to realize that Achan's children were doubtless adult children and were in on uh, the spoils, the knowledge of it being in the camp. Uh, according to the law of Moses, no child could be held guilty on any level, but certainly not concerning a death penalty crime, could not be held guilty on the basis of the actions of the father. The fact that the entire family 
is stoned and then their bodies burn is an indication that they were all co-conspirators in it, they were all in on it, and that they were all uh, adults. And so uh, that was how uh, the judgment was meted out as an example to all of the children of of Israel not to disobey God's uh, commandments. And the fierceness of God's wrath was turned away. The old saying is, the ruthlessness of sin... And sin is ruthless in our lives. The ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin. And God was ruthless with sin among the children of Israel. Again, I am convinced we'll see Achan one day in heaven. But he needed to bear the judgment of this as it relates uh, to his his own life and his own decision-making here. The lesson for us as Christians here in this this chapter 7, is that just as the children of Israel could not make progress in the conquest of the promised land, as long as there was willful disobedience in the camp, no church, but more importantly for us tonight, no individual Christian can ever make progress in possessing the fullness of the life that we read about in the New Testament that's again been purchased for us by Christ. None of us can make progress in appropriating those things as long as we accommodate willful areas of willful disobedience in our lives. It will always put us under the chastening and the discipline of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Everything comes to a screeching halt until I settle the issue of His Lordship in my life. And so God said, I don't not, I not only do I want their bodies to be stoned, I want their bodies to be burned. I want every bit of their influence removed from among my people. We see in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there is a man in the church at Corinth who is sleeping with his stepmother and nobody's blinking at it in the church at Corinth. Although they were so big-minded and broad-minded about sin and all, Paul writes a letter from I don't know how many hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away. He says, if you won't do anything about it, I'll do something about it. I will judge that situation as if I was there in the midst of it. Get that man out of your church. Don't you know that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? It'll destroy the church. It'll destroy your witness in that community. And if that man is going to elevate his love for sin and his selfishness and his self-will above the reputation of God and will not take into consideration how adversely it reflects upon you, get him out so the whole community can know that we know how to deal with these things in the body of Christ and that no, that does not reflect the standard of God among God's people. And they put him out. And he repented. And they brought him back in after his repentance. Happens all of the time. You know the area that it happens most in in our history here in the church? I'm just about done. We'll be out by 12. All the stores will be closed, even in and out. But the issue that we run into most often in this area is the area of divorce. 
where people just look and they say, I see what the scriptures say. I do not have a biblical grounds for divorce. I don't care what God says. And I'm going to go do precisely what I want. And after I'm done doing it, then I will come back and fellowship among God's people. Or most often, they don't cease to fellowship among God's people. They just do it and they can come, continue to come to church. And then we become aware of it. We have to go to someone and say, do you understand what the scriptures say related to this particular issue? Sometimes they don't. More often than not, they do. They say, I don't care. I'm out of this thing. I don't want anything to do with it. And I'm going to leave. And under my own self-will and my own transgression and willful disobedience against God, I'm going to do this and I'll just bear the consequences. And we're forced to say, you won't bear them here. And what the person does not realize, because they want to continue to come and sit in this room, is the mixed signals that it sends to everyone in the body. And they begin to think, what in the world is the standard in this church for divorce and for remarriage? And then pretty soon they begin to have doubts about the leadership in the church. They begin to have doubts about me, whether we... Am I just a preaching machine up here? Or do we live by this, this stuff? Because look at this person, what they're doing. And then the next thing you know, you've got divorces happening all over in the church. And then the next thing you know, nobody respects the authority of the Word of God in that church. That church is through. It's through. It's over for that church. And God will then be forced to raise up another one that respects the standard of His Word. But the person in their selfishness and self-will, doesn't care what happens to the reputation of God or the reputation of God's people. They're just going to do what they want to do. And it does so much damage. And it's not just divorce. It happens in lots of different areas. So as we close tonight, there is a happy ending to this because the theme of chapter 8, we'll be away from it for a couple of weeks, so I don't want everybody leaving terribly depressed. I just like people to leave marginally depressed, but not terribly uh, depressed. We learn in chapter 8 that God is the God of second chances. And He's a God of second chances because He knows what He's working with, you and I. Okay? But it is a very important lesson from chapter 7. We will never progress in our walk with the Lord if we allow willful disobedience to characterize our lives. It grieves the Spirit. It quenches the Spirit. It brings judgment into my life. And so it's great for us tonight to just allow, maybe we're not going to have time this evening to do a meditative set on it, but before we go to bed tonight, any of us, if any of us are accommodating our failure, our defeat no longer shocks us, we become accustomed to willful disobedience, accepting of it in our lives. There's no progress. There's no moving forward. In the light of the Scriptures, before we go to bed tonight, to settle the issue of God's Lordship in our life once again in this particular area so that we can continue to move forward all together in the book of Joshua. God has the grace for it in our lives. He wants us to possess all of the life that is ours in Christ. Let's stand together. If the worship team come forward, that'd be great.